Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. <coughs> Me? Matthew chapter 6. Does that sound loud enough? Gal, could I have a little more in house? Test one, two, test one, two, a little more, a little more. Yeah, I think that's good. Thank you. Matthew chapter 6. Let's begin with prayer. Let's thank God for our time together. Uh, to continue to study this marvelous doctrine of prayer, uh, tonight we're going to focus on uh, heaven uh, and how in this prayer that we, well, in any prayer, when we pray that we go there, we go directly to heaven. And so as we, even now, as we pray together, we go to heaven, our voices are heard in heaven. And um, uh, to be able to, with, um, with humility and reverence, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, you are great and we are small. You are righteous and holy. And we were born into this world sinners. We thank you, Father, that through your, your Son, our Lord and Savior, that you have re- redeemed us and provided for us eternal life. You have given us life with you. In our frail and finite minds, we... Uh, cannot comprehend all of what that means. But what we do know and can know is exceeding abundantly marvelous. We are therefore, Father, extremely grateful for you and for all that you are and do for us and have done for the tremendous grace, the victory won through Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, may your spirit, Father, impart your word upon each of us in the manner that you would have it to the greatest ability to increase our wisdom. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Marcus Dodds has a, a, a really neat commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And there's a couple of passages. Actually, I, I used it the last time I taught on this, and I, I'm, I'm using parts of it again now. And uh, this particular, what I'm going to start with, is uh, kind of a summary of his commentary at the front of of the prayer in terms of heaven. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Yeah, uh, yesterday, we focused on the fact that when you're praying, you're praying to your father, and he's a real father. Uh, like your earthly father was your real father, except this is your heavenly father. Uh, today, we want to focus on the fact that when you pray, you're going to heaven. You're directly going to heaven to speak to the Father. And the Bible makes uh, a lot about the difference between heaven and earth. And uh, uh, quite a bit, actually, uh, is written about heaven. In fact, in pagan theologies uh, of the past and and present, heaven is a thing. It's always a thing. There's a God of the heavens. Uh, The the Greek God of the heavens was uh, Uranus, uh, where... You know, our, our planet um, Uranus, we were told you can't say Uranus anymore, <laughs> sorry, that was, uh, that, uh, I'm a little tired again and, there, and I start acting like a 12 year old when I'm tired up here. So, but anyway, uh, the, uh, as Dodds writes, when the utmost skill and strength of the child have failed, we run to our father, never doubting that with him there's more skill and sufficient strength. We do this with our earthly fathers, and we saw this yesterday when our Lord said, if you being evil know how to give good things to your children, there are good fathers, and even they, compared to God, are evil. We must not lower the father to our level. We must seek his level, the words and lovely ways of heaven itself. It cannot, if, sorry, if we cannot see a solution, we must never think that God never sees one either. He sees as we cannot, and nothing will be impossible for him. When we pray, our Father in heaven, and know that he sees clearly the solutions to all our problems. And as Jesus told us in Matthew 6, that he knows what we're going to ask him before we even ask him. It is amusing to think that when our human skill is fruitlessly spent, that there's no more that God can do. We think, well, that's it. And we throw our hands up in the air. There's no more that God can do. Why? Because our strength is gone? 
when everything goes wrong with us, is there any help from God? And of course that there is. None of us can do good works without him. Not on our own can we do anything, in fact. Nothing can we do. Nothing, we can't change anything without him. We can't overcome anything. We can't do anything without him. And so what we do is, and, and there's, you know, there is a bit of a procedure to that, is that we study and we pray and we, with all of our diligence, obey him. You know, and obedience is by faith. We obey him and we do what he tells us to do. And when we sin, we know that we're forgiven. Thank God we are forgiven. Too often we pray to a God whom we do not set in the heavens, to whom we do not, in fact, ascribe as much wisdom and power as we do to other people. Now, is well, what kind of father is this? Father, creator, in heaven. Um, we sometimes trust others more than we trust God, don't we? And the way this plays out is you can tell that when, if you have an issue, do you first think of speaking to others about it before you ever think of speaking to God about it? And yeah, I'm guilty of that too. Uh, but <clears throat> we, have to, we have a Father in heaven who is ready and willing to hear us. Uh, so we should not be found despairing because we have prayer if we are, I guarantee we haven't prayed. Not legitimately prayed. We're praising God and thanking God. You will find your energy and strength coming to you when you just, in, in real understanding of what our Father, you are in heaven, sanctified or holy be your name, that that itself will give you strength. <clears throat> so prayer is a perfect remedy when our strength is on its way to exhaustion. Well, pray, don't wait until it's all gone. Pray while you can. This invocation sets before us a God of heavenly holiness as well as heavenly power. It is of his nature to help us in grace and in mercy. He promises that. He will help us. It is his nature to bless. That's true. Not to take away, but to give. That's his nature, and he does take away when it's a blessing to us. You know, discipline is a blessing. When we need a course correction, when we need to learn a lesson that we won't hurt, learn any other way besides the hard way, that God is willing to take away. But that in itself is a blessing, so it is God's nature to bless, in fact, to the utmost. He is also free from all suspicion. Does he have an ulterior motive? Is he up to something? Is he just messing with me? <laughs> I've thought that before. He knows our frame. In Psalm 103, he knows that we are dust. Or, New American Standard says, but dust. Meaning, but dust. He appreciates the feeblest beginnings in us. Right? Baby steps. He cherishes and fosters into life what man could count dead and lost, which is really us. He knows nothing of grudging or malice, of fault finders. He watches, but watches how he may encourage us in the slightest efforts towards righteousness. Watches how he may insulate us, or insinuate, sorry, his help. And in proportion to his own freedom from all taint and shadow of evil, he deals delicately with the sinner in all his way until our eyes begin to open to the perfect rectitude, simplicity, and loveliness of his character. And it takes a while. And he's patient with us. The feeblest beginnings of our eyes beginning to open. You know, people don't do this. If you're not progressed far enough according to the judgment of others, they will quickly put you down. Not everybody, of course, but many will. Are they patient with us? By the way, it's one of the manifestations or characteristics of divine love. Love is patient. We are to be patient with one another. 
God is extremely happy with the, just the beginnings of eyes opening, eyes of the soul opening to the loveliness of his character. And we have a long, still a long way to go when those eyes begin to open. But if, when those eyes begin to open, and we start to see, and what we see draws us in because it's beautiful. It's magnificent. Uh, if we get that far tonight, I'm studying a passage for a paper I'm doing, this final paper that I have to do before school's over. I can't wait till it's done. Uh, it's lingering over my head now, and, I'm, and, it's, and it's bothering me. But, uh, but it's a wonderful, this, doing this paper this way has been a wonderful lesson for me as a pastor. Uh, and it's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And it's about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about him as king and ruler of all. It's about him who is the inheritor of all things. He is about, it's about him who is the savior of all men and who will bring us into his glory and his kingdom. And it, it has so much in it. It is, uh, and, and the, the depth that I have been, at least to my level, have been able to look into it, it begs to look for more. Because you're looking into things, like that passage really covers a, a great part of the Bible about the whole plan of God for the human race and the aspects of it that go from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22. It actually has similar words to, in, in, to both ends of the Bible and a lot in between. And it has this, now, and, it, and it opens up to so many other passages, ones that you know, that, that speak of the kingship, right? There's a king. He's coming. He's already come and gone, but he's coming again. There's a kingdom. There's a king. There's a victory. There's an enemy. And the enemy's going to be vanquished and overcome. And to us, who are still in this world, our king has vanquished our enemy for us and set us up to be victors and witnesses in a world that is dark and evil. And it has this, this whole drama or more motif of this, you know, it, it's almost like Jesus is really not an underdog because he's the son of God, but when he hung on a cross, he sure did look like one. Um, and, you know, his victory is sweet. And think of what all that he's conquered you know, not just defeating an angel who rebelled against him, but defeating all sin and all death and bringing light and life to the human race. It's crazy. It's wonderful. So, as God says, he will straighten that which is crooked. And we're crooked. And he will straighten. And only he can do it. But we've got to see it. And there's, um, you know, obviously that uh, there's decisions that we have to make uh, based on faith. And prayer is one of those decisions. Uh, if we don't pray, we're not going to accomplish this. Right, we have to learn to pray. And that's, and as some, uh, one of the, one of the, um, I heard someone give a message today was in my class as a young man. He did a terrific job. Um, he said he was talking about holiness, and he said he said to the effect that I don't, I can't tell you what that looks like in your life. You have to figure that out. And I've been trying to find a way to put that exact thought in in words that make sense. And I've tried it from up here a few times. I'm never satisfied with how I say it. And this kid's name's Garrett, and he's, he's going to be a minister somewhere someday. Um, and he's, he's, he's in both of my classes. He's a, he's a great young man and has been on fire for the Word of God. And he, he's a nor, he's, I say normal, but he's, you know what I mean, like, he's, he's a regular man. Uh, and and, and uh, he's, I think he's got a gift at this. But anyway, you know, he put it so well. And I'm like, wow. And I wrote it down somewhere. 
which I'll probably lose. <laughs> no, but it's in my office. But, you know, here's holiness, right? Here's God describes it. Same thing with prayer. Here's prayer. I don't know what that looks like in your life, right? How long, what words, you know, are you going to use the Lord's Prayer? Are you going to modify it? Are you going to use it word for word? You don't have to use it word for word. I, I, th- I personally believe that we have to use the principles that are in the Lord's Prayer. And he wouldn't have taught us how to pray like this if, if it weren't true. But anyway, you know, uh, but the Lord's Prayer doesn't include everything. It, it, it covers everything. But all the things that you can pray for that fall under its categories are not actually mentioned. So, you know, again, what does prayer look like in your life? And I can't tell you that because you've got to figure it out. And I find that wonderful. There's a lot of people who hate that. And I know that to be true because they just want to be told what to do. Tell me what to pray, how often, and how long. And, you know, why do they want that? Why does anybody love rituals? Rituals have a beginning and an end, and you can get it over with. And you check it off. I've done my duty. I've done what I've ought to done, ought to have done. I've prayed today. I feel good. And it's really just pride, isn't it? Because to explore in prayer your relationship with God, to seek Him, to discover Him, to discover the truths about what the Lord gives us here, takes an investment, and, and I think that's why a lot of people don't like it, like prayer, because it's, it's vulnerable. It, it, uh, you know, what words do I use? It ta- it's an investment of time. Because you got to do it, you got to be on your own when you do it. You, you can't do it amongst distractions. You know those quick flare prayers you can do amongst from anywhere. You know you can do those amongst distractions. But in your your intimate prayer life with God, you need to be away from life, away from your phone, away from your television, away from your kids, away from everybody. And you have to go find a place in a room and spend time praying and concentrate. Right. What does it look like? We each have to figure that out. All right, 2 Matthew 6, 9. Pray then in this way, Jesus said. Really, it says, thus therefore you pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we have heaven mentioned twice. And we see the contrast there. And this is often put up. Uh, in in many places in Scripture, that heaven and earth are either they're put together as like God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and He puts them together. But so often in the Scripture, as we'll see here in a minute, they're they're separate from each other in terms of conflict. And so, and of course, there's conflict because we fell. There was God walking in the garden in the cool of the day where there was no issues. And then after we ate from the tree, there was issues. And then God is separated from us. We were removed from the garden, banished. So uh, we see here a contrast too in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is implying that his will is not being done on earth. And that's a no-brainer because we can see that. So he says, give us, so those are about God, the first three petitions that are about the holiness and glory and power and wisdom of God. Included in there is the Son of God. You wouldn't have a father without him. You wouldn't have a kingdom without a king. Uh, And then in verse 11, it's about us. Give us this day our daily bread, which talks about our contentment. And forgive us our debts as we we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. This is about our walking the narrow road that leads to life. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's likely there that that should be because of the definite article in front of evil. It's the evil, and it's in the masculine. So a a lot of scholars think that that should really be the evil one in reference to Satan. And and that doesn't make much of a big difference, though, um, whether you do it one way or the other. Uh, So we understand... Here Now, taking the prayer as a whole, and this is what I'm trying to do through these lessons, is to not tear the prayer apart, but to keep it together and then just highlight aspects of it. 
everything that we're asking for here. Again, these are all desires. They're petitions. We're desiring the uh, holiness of God, His kingdom, His will. We're desiring our contentment. We're desiring our own happiness in the grace of God, though we're sinners. We're desiring our peace with others through agape love. And we're desiring to walk on the narrow road that leads to life. Right? We have to desire these things. And <clears throat> that's what this prayer is about. These prayers are about us and wanting the same thing for others. Because it's our Father. Uh, and so, for all of this, right, I need contentment. I need to honor God more. Which all of us could say that. Where am I going with these requests that I am asking for and seeking? I am going to heaven. And we know as wherever heaven is, well, we say it's up. Uh, well, it could be down, and I don't mean in the belly of the earth. I mean like space is in three dimensions. The universe is three-dimensional. So when we're pointing up, you know, someone on the South Pole is pointing in the opposite direction, right? So when they're pointing up, they're pointing what we consider down. If you're on the equator, I guess you're pointing out. <laughs> so, and anyway, where is it? Uh, do we have it with our, our very expensive and advanced telescopes that can look into the far, far reaches of the universe? Do we see, you know, can we see like a little kingdom of heaven, you know, in there? And of course, we're never going to see that. Uh, it's out there somewhere. And uh, what does it look like? Uh, even we have a wonderful passage in Second Corinthians 12 where it seems to state that Paul went to heaven and came back and he wasn't allowed to tell anybody what he saw. But anyway, we understand that God is in heaven and our prayers reach Him. He is holy and all-powerful. We're praying to our Father in heaven. He is not limited by anything. We also acknowledge that earth is not enough for us, is it? Someday it will be. Because this earth is going to be made brand new and the new Jerusalem is going to be here. And we're going to be here. Whether it's we could really call it here, it's a brand new earth. Uh, but, you know, the earth as it is is not good enough for us. That's why when we're speaking with God, it's to heaven we go, not here. God is omnipresent, right? He's here. He's omnipresent. But we're told to pray to God in heaven. I mean, we could pray to God here. Say, well, he's in the room with me right now. But we're told to pray to God in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that we hate the earth. We know it's God's creation. There's a lot of good things in the earth. But everything that is good here is a gift from heaven. Everything. There is nothing on earth that is, nothing produced on earth is good. Nothing. And I, I, we do mean like intrinsically good is what I mean. But let's see this. Go to John 3. Go to John 3.25. John the Baptist uh, understands this. John 3.25. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So what we have here to set up the what's going on is that John's disciples have gotten into a conversation with another Jew, a religious person, obviously. And they're talking about purification. And there's a lot of purification law in the Mosaic Law about washings, depending on if you become unclean in certain ways. There's certain procedures that you got to go through that are either washings uh, or sacrifices by which you purify yourself from your uncleanliness and then you can return to the fold and to the temple. Usually, you are excommunicated for a day, or really a half a day. You could be excommunicated from uh, the people in the temple for until sundown. 
But during that day, you would have to wash or, or give sacrifice. There's all kinds of rules about it. And uh, that's what they're talking about, which is not a bad thing to talk about. It's, gener- it's pretty obvious here that since John is baptizing, that the topic of purification of Old Testament law and what John is doing, because there's, no ba- there's, there's no baptizing in the Old Testament law. There's washing but not like immersion. Uh, so there's a discussion about that. Uh, <clears throat> they also therefore notice that Jesus is, we find out later on that Jesus isn't baptizing, but his disciples are. They notice that Jesus' disciples are also baptizing and that people are going to them and not to John. And this would make sense. If <clears throat> you, know, you were told by John that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is the Messiah, and his disciples are baptizing, you would go to him, not to John. And that's what's happening. Whether they're trying to get John riled up by saying this or get him anxious, that they're not coming to you anymore, uh, we can't say for sure. But it's not really important. What's important here is John's attitude. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it be unless it has been given him from heaven. You see that? <laughs> John is like, whatever is good in my life has come from heaven. And if it's time for my ministry to end, guess where that came from? It's not from me. Right? It's it the you know, it, it's from heaven. It, it, there, you know, is John getting nervous here and saying, well, man, maybe we should do something more than baptism to get the crowd coming back over here. Maybe we should, you know, serve food or you know, post a sign that says free beer or something. I don't know. But it, it's, you know, he has none of that. He says, look, people, you're missing the point. The point is a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And you know, if we knew that and believed that, how thankful we would be for all the good things that are in our lives. What about all the bad things in our lives? Well, we deal with them. By the grace of God. But what has come from heaven is the word of God by which we can deal with the bad stuff. Because there's bad stuff in our lives. Uh, Sicknesses. Uh, people sin, right? Sin's not from heaven. Sin's from here. And we have to deal with sin in our own lives, people sinning against us. That we've got to deal with. But what do we deal, how do we deal with it? If we try to take something else from earth to deal with the things of earth, it just makes it worse. So people sin against us, we sin back. Not going to work. Just going to get worse. People sin against us. We get angry and bitter and revengeful. Not going to work. It's going to be terrible. I have a vice and I'm going to overcome it with another vice. Uh, that doesn't work. People have tried it. Doesn't work. Vices are from heaven. These things are off. I mean, from earth. And so John says, "Look." A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Then he says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. So what is he saying there? I have to go away. I'm not the Christ. I'm not here to stay. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. But he's not the friend of the bridegroom is not the one getting married. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And what he means there is his ministry. His ministry is over. Practically over. And that's just fine with John. Just fine with him. It's a marvelous attitude. Uh, so, when I'm praying, like this is the attitude I'm seeking for. So part of the, in, in the Lord's Prayer, a reference to this would be, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You know, an attitude of humility. 
Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Not my kingdom. This life isn't my kingdom. I didn't make it. I didn't make me. The only thing I've made here is sin. That's me. That's on me. But His Spirit, His Word, my Father, my Lord, my the good things that I have, the good people in my life, the relationships that are filled with love. Love is from heaven. Love is from God. Right? Those are from His kingdom. <clears throat> James writes in James 1.17, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Uh, and we saw that yesterday in 1 Peter chapter 1, that God does not respect people. Right? God cannot be manipulated. Right? We have a father, but our earthly fathers could be manipulated by us. Some, some I guess. Not, maybe not all. But some fathers aren't even around. But you know, people are manipulatable, and God is not. And so it says it here too. And every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing bestowed is from above. So, earth produces nothing intrinsically good. Only heaven sends good to us. So, our prayers, that's where they go. Up, down, all around, wherever you want to point to heaven. It's way out there. It's a long, long, long ways away. Uh, You know, whatever it... Well, we can't get into that. I mean, nobody knows where, what, how far... How big? <laughs> you know, it's... And one of the things we see here, it's coming up soon, but, you know, it gives us a point of reference. It's, it's very helpful to us who are fi- so finite-minded, but we are, that God is omnipresent. And omnipresence, I can't handle that in my brain, my little brain, everywhere, all at once, at the same time. But when it comes to having a one God, my Father, who is in one place... And I can focus on that. I can focus on Him and the place that He is. And we know as the Bible describes this place of heaven, you know, not like what it actually looks like, but what its characteristics are, which are God's characteristics. It's holy. It's righteous. It's just. It's wonderful. And that's where we have to go. If we think about, you know, I, I gave this a little bit of thought, but not too much. Um, I, I put the word intrinsically in there just to cover all my bases, just in case anybody says, well, what about this and what about that? Intrinsically means that in and of itself it is naturally good. So take like food. You know, without heaven you can't have food. You need water? Where does it come from? Sun? Same with water. If there isn't a precipitation cycle, the water's going to all dry up. No, it just won't be here. Uh <clears throat> Nothing produced here is what we would call divine good. Everything produced on earth since the fall has been nothing but bad. And so, as Jesus said, I'm the bread of life who has come into heaven. Anybody who eats of this bread, he will never hunger again. Uh, So, when we look at heaven as the only source of power and goodness, we see that when we pray, that's where we have to go. And we go there every time. You know, there was a time when you first prayed as a believer. And that was... Uh, This is kind of neat to think of. I don't know if it's a a reality, but it was the first time that your voice was heard in heaven. The first time that you legitimately prayed as a believer. That was the first time your voice was heard. And now every time you pray, your voice is heard. In the halls of God's palace, if you will. Whatever image you want. Throne room, prayer room, somewhere. But it's in heaven. Now, we also know that Jesus sits at the right hand of God as our mediator and he intercedes for us in heaven. And he says that he prays for us and he intercedes for us and he's our mediator. And so we go to God in his name. <clears throat> but, uh, as we know, there is great conflict There's conflict within us, and there's conflict in the world. 
And the Bible presents the uh, conflict between heaven and earth. And this is wonderful because Jesus, our Lord, uh, when He came to earth, He came to reconcile. And it's not just men. It's the whole universe. There's a cosmic reconciliation by which this world, the earth, the universe will be destroyed, but it will be replaced by a new one, and that's due to Him. He has made it so through His incredible work, His incredible sacrifice. There's another passage I'm doing for another paper is in Revelation 19. And they're on my mind because I've been working on them so much. But this uh, heaven, and Revelation 19 is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're all dressed in white and Jesus is in a robe dipped in blood. He's, he's dressed differently than us. He's in red and we're in white. So when we see this conflict between heaven and earth, we find that it is, if we just have to keep reading, that where we see the conflict, we eventually see the reconciliation. And the reconciliation is always through Jesus Christ. So let's look at this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The conflict, therefore, becomes, um, you know, earth, is the place of sin and shame and men, men and women. And heaven is the place that God considers his kingdom and his domain. Uh, That's a term, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, that's used for when Jesus came and he said, the kingdom of heaven is among you. Uh, And so the kingdom of God is the same phrase used in the kingdom of heaven. And so the two are in conflict, they can't be one with the other. But when the Lord comes, and I, I think it's significant that hanging on a cross, He hangs between both. He's, he's basically in the first heaven, we would say, though only a few feet off the ground, as He reconciles heaven and earth. So 1 Corinthians 8.5 says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, from by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And uh, Paul, this is where Paul, Paul loves to use his prepositions in uh, neat little ways. Uh, the preposition here is, uh, we live, hold on, the Father from whom are all things, we exist for Him. That's one preposition. One Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And you know, the significance of this is a bit theological, but it is significant that the fact that it's through Jesus Christ we exist, it's by Jesus Christ we exist, and it's for the Father that we exist. And for would mean, you know, He's He's the one that we owe our homage to. It's same to the Lord, but. A distinction is being made here between the work of the Father and the work of the Son. What in contrast to the Father and the Son are these gods. And Paul rightly says they're so-called. And mythology is just wonderfully entertaining. I mean, it's made up by man and it's over thousands and thousands of years. Mythology has been developed into the most marvelous stories. They're marvelous. They're fun to read. A lot of uh, Marvel movies are, have come from them. They, they've stolen from um, to, to make movies and stories. Uh, <clears throat> and in the in the mythologies, there's always uh, a sort of cha- well, they call it chaos if it's Greek. Uh, there's a chaos, and in that chaos is nothing, but it is something. And what eventually comes from it is order. And we see something of that in Genesis 1, where the Holy Spirit is hovering over the darkness of the waters. And then God starts to create. And what God does there is he creates order. Separates the waters, the land from the water. 
uh, he you know, create, let there be light. And so he, God brings order. And the mythologies have taken from that. But their stories about heaven are, are just incredible because they, they can't really have an almighty God who's a creator because they're, they don't worship that God. And so they have all kinds of stories about how life can come from nothing. You know, and in one case, one that I remember, and I think it's Egyptian, that in the chaos there's an egg, and the egg cracks, and in that is some kind of life that can self-procreate, because, you know, you've got to make, make humans somehow. Well, it's not humans yet, but they make something else, and that something else fights against its original. It, there, it always kind of works in this way, in which there's an original who makes the next level down, the next level down fights against the original. And in fact, in Greek mythology, that's Zeus fighting against Kronos and destroys him, but still he's beholden to him by like fate or something like that. And then from Zeus or that next level comes the creation of the heaven and the earth and, and mankind. And it starts with conflict, it creates conflict, and there's all kinds of stuff that they throw in there, even morality, and there's actually some truths that they borrow to throw in there to make it all work. And it doesn't work. It never works. <laughs> but it's, it's great fun. The stories are wonderful, if, even if they're not true. But it's obvious, obvious that a lot of people are duped by them. But what do we have? Uh, a creator, our father, who is uncreated. So that's you know, all myths get thrown out right there because there's no, you know to the natural mind that doesn't make any sense. How could he have no beginning? But yet we have an uncreated, self-existent father by whom are all things, and he control. He has created all things. He controls all things. He is all things, and therefore that's why we worship him and him alone. When we pray to him, we're praying to heaven. So when we have this conflict between the so-called gods and the true God, which is really conflict between demons as Paul describes them, or whatever, you could even see uh, uh, the, the, the rulers on the earth who are against God and against truth, that there's a conflict there. And then if you go to Ephesians 1, go to Ephesians 1, 9. I'm going by too fast. And so, like, this is the, the end story. All right? It's, uh, it's kind of like, it's, as the scripture seems to portray, that the, the church is the actual end of time. Not that, not that there's more time, that there isn't more dispensations coming. But. Um, uh, so anyway, in, in Ephesians 1.9 it says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. That would be in Christ. He purposed in Him with a view to an administration. Administration uh, means uh, like a dispensation or um, uh, the, the ruling of all in a, in a particular time with a view to an administration suitable for the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. And this same thing is stated in Colossians, in, in the passage I've been working on, in that in Christ all things hold together. I think that's uh, Colossians 1, 17, 17 or 18. In Him all things hold together. And we see here that in Him, uh, in the heavens and the earth, uh, or the summing up of all things. And it's all in Him. Nobody else. Him. And so what are the all things? It's everything, whether it's judgment or salvation. And what we find, too, is that, you know, here we are, sinners, and, uh, you know, how is He going to make us able or qualified to be in his kingdom forever. And it turns out that he can't revamp us. He can't improve us. He can't remodel us. He couldn't. None of that works. 
And so He made us brand new. He made us brand new creatures. So there's the summing up of all things in Christ, right? So the heaven and earth are in conflict, and then in Christ they're put together. Go to Ephesians 6, passage we know well. Six ten. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. And where are they? In the heavenly places. And we say, wait a minute. Can they be in God's heaven? No, they can't. So there has to be some, you know, there's a God's heaven, we call it the third heaven, and then there's a stellar universe, we call it the second heaven, and then there's our atmosphere, we call it the first heaven. And it's not a biblical term, it's just a way that theology helps us to keep these things separate. We love to categorize things. But somewhere between God's heavenly abode, which is perfect, that's where we pray, pray to, and between that and earth, There are these really bad players who are spiritual, who are created by God. Because we find that Jesus is the creator of all things. So when they were created, he doesn't create things that are evil. He can't do that. And so when they were created, they were good. And something went wrong. And none of us really know much about that. We just know that it happened. And here they are. They're set against. So when we find their ruler, go back to Ephesians 2. The head bad guy. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the, where is he? The heir. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now working. The power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Is that demon possession? Satanic possession? You'd probably say no, but what does it matter? It matter whether he's in them doing stuff, but he can only be at one place at one time. He's a, he's a creature. But there's a spirit of this evil that is in where? In the air, in the heavens. And yet, here we are on earth. And, you know, if it's just like... He exercises great power over people. Is it not so... It's not obvious. It's obvious here that he exercises great power over people. And so, here's, here's the point today's, tonight's lesson. My Father's in heaven. And if my conversation about spiritual matters, about spiritual things, about the things that are important, about the things that are good, if that conversation stays here on earth, then I am not going to accomplish that what I must here on earth because what I must accomplish is heavenly. I've got to produce the fruit of the Spirit. I've got to produce that love of God. All good things come from above. And so my conversation has to go to heaven through past all those powers that are in the air. It has to go to heaven. I must talk to heaven about these things. And when I, as we've seen in prayer, and in the Lord's Prayer, we're seeking truth in ourselves. We're seeking change in ourselves. And we're using prayer for that, as well as study. But we must talk to our Father in heaven. So how would I see if my conversations about my spiritual life and my problems and my whatever solutions are just amongst me and other people? That's a conversation that's here on earth. I'm not saying that we don't do that. Of course we do, but I'm I'm just illustrating how, po- how important it is 
that my conversations about the important things of life are heard and I'm hearing from heaven itself. So we see here in, in Ephesians 2 where Satan's in the air and it, that they have, he has power over the sons of disobedience, which is a term for unbelievers, by the way. <clears throat> Demonic powers are present in heaven to usurp power for themselves. They're at constant work. They're doing a good job. As we turn on the news, and we see the good job they're doing in the hearts of men. Notice it, that Satan is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So why, when you see just complete evil things done by what is apparently normal people, what I think uh, I, it doesn't matter. There's something in the news. There's always something in the news every day that's like you're like what, uh, and it's just pure evil, pure evil. How do you convince somebody that there's no gender? Or how do you convince a doctor to do a gender-altering surgery on a child? How do you do that? Do they not have a conscience? They're doctors. They went to medical school. You've got to have somewhat of a conscience, I would think. They're not like axe murderers or serial killers. But yet, they will think it's a good thing. Uh, to change the gender, or try, you can't change the gender of anybody. God picks that. It's a revolt against God. God, you can't even tell us what gender we are. We're gonna, we control ourselves. How do you convince people to do that? There's this spirit working in the sons of disobedience, and it's everywhere. And we look at our world, and we say, good Lord, well, I, I hope you come back soon. It seems like you have to come back soon, but... We can get mixed up in it and drag us down. And yet, why is it dragging us down? Because our eyes are here. And they have to be here. We have to deal with it. We have to, in fact, as believers, let the light shine through us and try and improve the lives of people who are messed up in that nonsense. The best that we can, whatever we can do, in service of them. But while we're serving them, if our eyes are only here, we will burn out. Our eyes, our hearts have to go to the place where none of that exists. What is there in heaven? Purity, holiness, truth. And our Father, and at His right hand, our brother, who intercedes for us. And we got to shut out the phone, the people, everybody. And on a daily basis, go there. Right? In your heart, you're there. I saw, I, in my heart, I have a picture of it when I'm there with him. Not all the time. You know, sometimes I'm shooting up prayers way too fast. But, you know, in the time when I truly I calm myself down, I try and do this every single day and quiet my heart. And what I see is just blackness. <laughs> It's my vision of heaven. I, I can't put anything there in my mind. It just doesn't seem to fit. Because I don't know what's there. It's just kind of like a big black hall or something like that. I don't know. Whatever, whatever image you get, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. What matters is that you know you're speaking to your Father in heaven. Heaven and earth are at odds with one another. Time, time, time. Here we go. Uh, Jeremiah 6. God said that these are the, the priests in Israel who are not doing their job. The priests in Israel are supposed to be teaching the people truth. They're supposed to be teaching the people prophecy. They're and they're not doing it. But, you know, it's become political. Israel in the priesthood uh, has become uh, just like Washington, D.C. is now. It's all just political. You know, who can get power, who can get money, who can get wealth and power and influence, and how do they keep it? And so, note, note that first line in Jeremiah 6.14, 
and they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. <laughs> you know what I think? When I read that, I think of like a government program. I'm listening to this amazing book about India, the slums of India. And the government of India has all kinds of programs to help the poor people. And there are millions and millions of them. There's a billion plus people in India. And a great portion of them live in shacks. This awful life. Uh, And all kinds of programs. Ain't nobody's life getting better. They, they install the programs and then they find a way to pocket the money themselves and then they don't help them out. It happens all the time. I'm sure it happens here. Right? What is this? Superficial. And what? They're saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. Things are going to be fine. No, they're not. Not if my, my, if my heart, my relationship isn't right with God. It's not. It's not going to be all right. So, demonic powers are present in heaven to usurp power for themselves. They hope for peace and reconciliation through the return of unity. Uh, The powers that be promise the human race that everything's going to be okay. But it's not going to be okay. The popular progressive idea of late, of which there are many popular progressive ideas of late, is that all humanity is going to be made equal. By ability, economic equality, social equality. They call it equity, right? (laughs) They don't even know what the word means. Ability, economic, social, and political ways, everybody is going to be equal. You're all going to have the same amount of money. It's communism. Everybody's going to have the same, same, even going to, right? Communism, the same cars, same dress, same clothes, same salaries, lived in the same kind of house. Everything was the same. It's a very popular progressive idea. And what is promised? It's peace. There is no peace. And Jesus said this in Matthew 10:34, "Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword." I said, "Wait a minute, but he's a peacemaker. He is." But to those with whom God is pleased, He's the peacemaker to believers. He bridges the gap between heaven and earth for believers, to those who accept Him, to those who believe upon Him, not to the world that is fallen. I didn't come to bring peace on earth. He said, wait a minute, that's what the angels sang. Right, Keith? They sang. <laughs> that's what they sang. And the night Jesus was born, Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. No. Glory to God on the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Isn't that funny we were talking about that? That was, it was already in my message. On earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That is peace. Where, who, in whom are all things summed up? In whom are all things held together? Who's the arche? Arche meaning the ruler, the beginning who is the creator of all things, who is the firstborn, the preeminent one, the inheritor of all things, both the old creation and the new, because he's the firstborn from the dead. I love that phrase. Firstborn from the dead means first resurrected. And firstborn doesn't mean, well, yeah, I'm the first guy. No, in the Jewish realm, firstborn means inheritor, ruler of all things. And that's what he is. And so only in him is there peace. And so, real quick, Ephesians 2, 1 again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly walked in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of, my, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then there's a but. And the Greek, it's de, D-E, little tiny word, conjunction, but, but God. The contrast is wonderful. You see, in every case, if you just keep reading the conflict that we see, which is awful and evil, eventually is resolved. But it's always resolved in Jesus Christ. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even as we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together with him. Together should be there because it's in the word. And raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And the ages to come would mean here and include eternity. And what is he resolved? Where are we raised up with him together and seated together with him? Where? In heaven. Heavenly places. It's the plural of heaven, in the heavens. And so our prayers are going to heaven, and we must recognize that. We're praying to our Father who is in heaven. This is not an earthly thing. We are going to the place of holiness and purity, and it is there that we're seeking these petitions that Christ has given us, seeking the solution to them, seeking the understanding of them, the clarity of them, and the fulfillment of them in our lives, each one of them are to be fulfilled in us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you have given us prayer. Thank you that right now as we speak, you hear our voices in heaven. You hear our thoughts as we pray to you. We don't have to pray out loud, of course. And that as we speak to you, as we search in you, we know, Father, that in heaven you are hearing us far, far above the earth, far, far away through all of space and time. To you, Father, our eternal Father. And it is you in your nature that you will be merciful, patient, that you will straighten that which is crooked, and that you will give us a heart of joy and of peace. We thank you for our Lord and Savior that has made this all real and possible. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.